architecture is so very different from other visual arts because it has to take into consideration things that don't meet the eye. I have always thought <laughs> that in architecture, you sort of play the long game. You don't need to capture it all or understand it all at first glance, but it's an experience that resonates with you beyond being there. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a journalist for nearly 20 years, most recently as the home and design director at Departures Magazine. And this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. And welcome to our first episode of season two. Thanks to all the incredible feedback we've gotten so far, and to our dedicated fans, we have a fantastic lineup planned. Our first guest is someone who needs little introduction to followers of art and architecture, Annabelle Seldorf. The German native has lived and worked in New York for decades, leaving an indelible mark on her craft. Time and time again, Seldorf has shown that great architecture can enhance and elevate our lives. And she can design a Manhattan townhouse or a school in Africa with the same quiet, thoughtful elegance she brings to many of her A-plus level art world projects. If her portfolio of white box art spaces sounds cold or aloof, it isn't. Not only does she create chic but livable interiors, but her own family furniture brand called Vika has just undergone a major reboot that's perfectly timed for our new lockdown era. For someone who has such a stellar blue-chip list of clients, I was relieved to find her just as you would want to imagine her. Curious, thoughtful, and humble. After all of these years in the industry, the Cologne native and Pratt University graduate still retains her German sense of practicality and humility. And even a wonderful dry wit. I spoke with the architect from her home in Maine, about how designing a chair can make you a better architect, why she loves boring things, and to reminisce about her early clubbing days. So I just wanted to go back to the very beginning um, with with you and your career, because it eventually comes full circle with um, your new line of furniture that you're, you're working on. Um, tell me a little bit about your youth, um, as your father was an architect and your grandmother an interior designer, what was your first memory that you have about the presence of design and architecture in your life? It's probably really, when did I not have that memory? It was kind of everything. Everything had an aesthetic dimension. My parents weren't obsessive designers. It's not like they changed furniture or architecture all the time. It was more perhaps a way of life. And I was very aware of my father's work, his interaction with clients, the worry about that. And at a young age, I was quite determined to do just about anything but that. When you first decided to move to New York to go to school and you, you went to, to Pratt, if I do recall correctly. That's right. um, so like, why New York? What was the, how did that happen? <laughs> Do you want the long version or the short version? I want the long, I want the longer, I want the fun version, but I want the long version all the same. Well, it perhaps starts out with the fact that um, my degree average when I finished high school wasn't up to snuff to get into architecture school. Really? So I thought um, I would take a year off. In Germany, they have this sort of, 
system to uh, see however many applicants to a particular topic would would be eligible. And it just didn't work out. So I was not totally certain that I really wanted to go into architecture. So I wasn't unhappy to take a year off. I went and traveled and New York was my first stop and I was mesmerized by New York. Growing up, I had studied in a French high school and I had always had the fantasy that sooner or later I would be bicycling with a beret on my head in Paris. But when I was when I came to New York, it just was fascinating and and it was a place that I couldn't let go of. I subsequently traveled to South America, came back to New York and sort of spent a couple of months just walking around everywhere. This is a long time ago. So New York was quite different then. And um, and then when I returned to Germany, I realized that really what I wanted was to go to school uh, in America. And I would think that in, in retrospect, it was both because I loved being in New York. I didn't want to be elsewhere. I didn't want to be in in the middle of the country or something like that. No, I wanted to be in New York. And uh, so Pratt seemed like uh, like an opportunity. And yeah, I applied. They took me. <laughs> <laughs> and what was that? You know, as you say, like New York was such a different place in like 1980. What was, do, what do you remember from those, from those days in New York? Like if you were to explain to a younger person today, like how, just how different things were in comparison to what New York is like today. How would you describe that experience um, of being a young person living in New York? It was a much, 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 much grittier place. Needless to say, you know, all the things that people have and grow up with, like cell phones, uh, didn't exist. So you communicated and you moved around in the city in a very different way. When you took the subways, they were just full of graffiti and they were loud as hell. And in the summer, you still think that you're in a sauna when you're going <laughs> below ground, but it was so much more extreme. Everything was much more extreme. Some things never changed. Yeah, well, that's right. In some ways, New York is New York still. I love it just as much. What was a sort of a Saturday night like for you as a as a young uh you know architecture student in new york like what what was that for for people of of my generation that remember you know i grew up outside of new york and to me there was that gritty new york that forbidden new york uh you know that you knew never to go to or you would be murdered or something it totally was going to clubs and hanging out with people and staying out till the wee hours and all of the classic places from I don't know, Studio 54 to Area to Peppermint Lounge to the Roxy to you name it. Where I even went to the Mud Club. <laughs> Do you think that, that, that early, those early days of those incredibly social experiences sort of impacted your career in some way? Do you think that it sort of shaped who you are? Well, I tend like to so think- Like so many college experiences do. I tend to think that everything shapes you one way or the other. Certainly, one of the things that shapes you is to immerse yourself in in a truly very different environment and a different language. And and now, forty years later, I know that I still have an accent. 
mm-hmm. um, but I came to New York and didn't speak English all that well. And so to sort of understand the place, understand the people, realize that there were as many foreigners as I was, but also certain codes of behavior, things, traditions, ways of being. They were very, very different from, you know, the orderly place that I had grown up in. Before we return to Annabelle, a word from our sponsor, Jaloux Ebeniste. Jaloux Ebeniste are creators of collectible design made in France. Based in a medieval village in Brittany, the atelier is led by aesthetic director, Sandra Skolnick Jaloux, and master cabinet maker, Jan Jaloux. Les Jaloux design their own collections and collaborate with top interior designers from around the world on bespoke commissions for private residences and super yachts. And brands like Dior, Lalique, and Cartier have all embraced their work. One of the materials that Jaloux specializes in is parchment, as Sandra explains. Parchment or vellum is a classic Art Deco finish requiring tremendous technical savoir-faire. Jan, my husband, has been working with parchment for more than 20 years. As creative artisans, we are drawn to the warmth and aesthetic restraint of parchment, and we're always trying to push the limits of the materials we use. For more information, visit jaloux.com. That's J-A-L-L-U.com. It's hard to think of someone in the architecture world who has so consistently impacted how art is viewed and understood. From the Neue Gallery on New York's Museum Mile to Miami's Rubel Museum, as well as brand name galleries such as David Zwerner, Hauser & Wirth, and Gladstone, Seldorf has had a direct and lasting influence on what the gold standard should be for experiencing art. And her upcoming refit and expansion of the famed Frick Collection in New York is one of those museum projects that will be talked about for years to come. As the layman might underestimate the skill required to create a blank canvas for stellar works of art, I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into her process and what goes on behind the scenes. And so to someone who is completely uninitiated with your work, um, how do you describe to a, a new client, you know, what the Seldorf approach to architecture is that makes it unique? I actually remembered recently that when I had an interview with a client maybe 20 years ago or so, this rather brash developer said, why would I hire you if you don't have a distinct style of your own? I can't recognize what you do. And 20 years later, I think that's really your problem if you don't recognize what I do. Um, (laughs) But the work that we do is not formulaic. It's not about looking in a particular way, but it is really about what it does for people, what it does within the context where a particular building is placed, how it responds to the utilitarian, but also the sort of intellectual and spiritual needs, and finding a way for that to take shape, for that to take form, with people in mind always, with a sense of dimension that is human at once understandable but that is also in some ways made for you and so to some extent that addresses 
purpose too. For me, it's very, it's very helpful to not have to just do a building, but to understand what I'm doing it for. And while I believe that utility and function uh, figure in the process of design, I also believe that a great building has tremendous value and can be used in different ways. For example, if you think about great industrial buildings, great industrial buildings make great art buildings or great other things because they're big open spaces. So in some ways, the thought that utility matters is not altogether wrong, but it's also a tool. It's a tool to find definition of sequence of spaces, of rhythm, of circulation, of structure, light, and all of those things. Um, and it is all of them together that ultimately, I think, produce something worthwhile if you do it well. <laughs> if you're designing a, a school for children in Africa, let's say, and then you're also designing an art gallery in, in Chelsea with that the four stories. What would you want someone to understand of the commonalities between these two spaces? Is it kind? Do you approach them completely differently, or do you use the same kind of thinking in both? And it's just, uh, it's just that you're following sort of like the good process of creating space for any client. I think ultimately, I, I actually think ultimately it's the same. So much of it has to do with understanding the other. And is a school different from an art gallery? Absolutely. I think the more you know about a place, the no more you know about a culture. And a school in Zambia, for example, um, required understanding how people live, where they come from, how they are safe in schools or in this school when they are not otherwise safe because there are no roads, trucks are barreling through. So there, I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's different considerations that go into any one project. And it's my business to understand what those considerations are. And as a result, I don't think that projects look the same, but they're fueled by the same interest. And that's probably what I really mean when I say specificity. I don't want a project in Tokyo to feel like it should be could be anywhere, even if certain aspects of a of the tectonic language are the same. And even if I am the author and have certain biases towards certain things, um, I will still want to be informed enough by the desire to to know what the circumstances are. And circumstances are something that you can go in very, very deep. You can totally go down the rabbit hole, of course. But it's that, you know, it's the dialogue, learning, synthesizing, analyzing, um, letting, letting that information sink in and using it... Um, to make something that perhaps in the first place I can understand myself. And when you started to be asked back again and again to do, you know, specific type of art spaces, is this something that you kind of said, oh, great, like, let me pursue this? Or did it kind of happen by accident? 
as you know, as the the career of any architect is a very slow, you know, process that takes quite a lot of time. Yeah, everything takes a lot of time, and um, it's I care deeply about art, uh, especially the visual arts. It's something that, in not direct ways has always been very influential for me. And so the more you know, the more you know. If you make a gallery, then all of a sudden you understand the processes that go into it. It's not just an exhibition space. It's not just is it daylit or or, or uh, artificially lit. But it's also how does this gallery work? And they're not all the same. And what is the kind of work that's exhibited there? And where is it located? A gallery in Los Angeles will look different from one in Chelsea or one in Berlin. And it's something that I've always thought is very interesting because, of course, whenever you see a work of art, knowingly uh, or unknowingly, you will take in the circumstances, right? So there is no such a thing as a neutral space, even if it is a white cube. And many people sort of debate the validity of the white cube. I tend to think that that's a relatively unimportant uh, ideological place, but not every white cube is the same. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, what was your? what would you believe to be the most common misconception of your work when it pertains to the world of art? I mean, is that is that something you're constantly kind of fighting back against this idea of the white cube and that, you know, that that's essentially what you're doing? And a, a kind of a, a sort of an over, oversimplification, if you will, of a very complicated process. Because every time I talk to anyone who's built a new gallery space, whether it's by you or anybody else, and they're talking about the the constraints and the way that things had to work together, and it's way more complex than what if you just walk in off the street and you see white, you know, a white box. There's so much more that goes into it, almost more than anything else that I normally encounter. Like, um, say, sometimes like you know, a condo building or anything like that. Well, in a funny way, it's it's marginal, right? Because at face value, it is all the same. At face value, most galleries use sheetrock and drywall. And I think about how high is the space and how much light do you need. So once you accept that it's a very limited vocabulary, it becomes ever more esoteric. It's not even the real word. But but the the differentiation is one that not everybody is interested in. I'm interested in that. For a very long time, I was shy of talking to colleagues because I thought, I'm really interested in boring things. And What's the I, most boring thing you're interested in? I think it's, I call it resolution. Um, mm. But resolution seems like uh, a formulaic type of thing, right? And and that's, what kind of resolution? You mean like screen resolution, or like like a, in a how do you, in the context of architecture? What is what do you mean by resolution? Is making sure that you've answered all the questions, and that you're cognizant of where you want to get. Can you give an example? Well, I think that what always happens is is that in just about any space, how a person moves through space and how they perceive their own path um, should feel inevitable or logical. 
and that is overlaid with other uh, needs. Like, for example, I'll stick to a gallery example. Mm -hmm. I kind of think about this is a space where I want to show art, so I don't want to have any doors in the way. Mm. At the same time, and I also want to have corners in that space. And so the proper placement of things allow the space to live up to its potential, but not be contrary, but not be void of humanity. Uh, that's sort of, I think that's an actually pretty good description because it has to be in balance. You know, there are people who just are not interested in what some what a person or uh, a human will experience in a space, but they're interested in the perfection of it. I don't believe that perfection exists. I think that I'm interested in balance. I'm interested in tension. I'm interested in, in perception. It sounds like it's almost like an economy of ideas in designing a space, that it's the most a number of, of uh, considerations into the, the the most straightforward logical journey that someone takes. Is that, yep. is that That's, accurate? Uh, thank you. You can become my spokesperson. Ah, okay, perfect. No, but I think that's, that's totally accurate. Um, I've always thought it was very interesting that Einstein uh, at one point said that you should do as little as possible, but not so little that it becomes nothing. And that kind of describes it. So I feel like, nah, we don't need this. Um, nope, remove that. So as someone who's an observer of the real estate market through your work on things like condos and just the urban built environment in general, if you had to make a prediction of what your beloved New York would look like in 10 years after this pandemic, uh, what would that be? I've never really uh, believed that um, what is in news every day, people who speculate, it's going to be like this. And if we don't raise taxes, it's going to be like that. Um, I'm not a great speculator. I am very certain of one thing. Climate change is what's really going to change how we go about business, any business. And I think that is coming so fast and so extreme that we will have very little time to speculate and have to really put our minds together to, to being more radically committed to making changes to how we use energy and start thinking about what can we do to avoid horrible hurricanes, wildfires, floods. And how is Seldorf Architects sort of responding to this? Do you do you wind up much too more slowly? Time? Much too slowly. Much too slowly, mm. and it's not with great certainty that you. I do not have the optimism that says it's like I'm so uh, virtuous that I know exactly what to do. <laughs> I think a lot of it is consciousness and really sort of questioning every step you take, every material you use, and somehow finding practical way of going about it. I've often thought that if you are rich and you give away everything you have, like everything, people do that, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily make the difference. It doesn't make you even a better person per se. But there are mechanisms, I think, that allow people to to contribute in meaningful ways. 
those are the ways that we that everybody has to find for themselves the best ways of doing that i'm much much more mindful now of you know travel of materials embedded energy local craft etc cetera, etc cetera. and all of those things are good <clears throat> do they make the decisive difference no they don't but collectively the more we do the more of a difference that will make and so not sticking your head in the sand and pretending it's not happening or you're not responsible i think is is with increasing urgency uh, what we have to do and we have the same obligation vis-a-vis social ills inequity you know the need to diversify uh, and and to really take that on before we return to annabelle a word from our sponsor fort street studio fort street studio's sumptuous carpets are expertly hand knotted and executed in nuanced color combinations that are the signature of the studio's painterly designs which originate from watercolor art the luxurious pieces are customizable in color size and shape which is why a global list of top architects and interior designers specify them for their clients' interiors. Founded in 1996 by artists Janice Provisor and Brad Davis, Fort Street Studio is world-renowned for its suede-like hand-knotted wild silk and wool silk blend carpets that combine traditional techniques with inventive textures and modern, sophisticated aesthetics. This year, the design duo at the company's helm published their first book with Rizzoli, titled A Tale of Warp and Weft, that chronicles 25 years of adventures in carpet making. For more information, visit fortstreetstudio.com. Annabelle Seldorf's furniture, lighting, and accessories line, called Vika, was started 70 years ago by her grandmother, Vika Maria Seldorf, in Cologne. Her parents, including her architect father, later took over the business that informed Annabelle's early upbringing. The newly expanded line has dozens of classic mid-century modern pieces, I wanted to ask the architect why she chose to keep her family's brand alive and what it means for her career. Early 90s, you could only find find giant club chairs. And I didn't want furniture to be so big. And I've been accused of making formal furniture. I don't think the furniture is that formal, but... It's true. It's not you're not lying in a club chair. You're sitting in it. Um, I find that sort of supportive and comfortable because I can't read that way. Um, but but it, it's it's not for everybody. It's not for without structure. And can you describe maybe two of the new pieces, uh, like key pieces in this new collect in this sort of upcoming collection? It's actually funny. The uh, one of the key pieces is called the Dodi chair. And it's a chair that my mother designed. It's my a dining chair that I have at home. <laughs> when I received it in New York, I all of a sudden realized all my life I had thought this chair is like really uncomfortable. So I changed it. I gave it a different rake and sort of did it with a nod to my mother. I like it very much because it is it's uh, utilizes very thin steel. It's kind of like a line drawing that has upholstery. Um, very minimal, if you will, uh, for the seat at the back. And and now I love that chair. 
and it's sort of an interesting thing to think that you've contributed something to it. And it took me a while to sort of say, like, I can actually just change it. And this chair has been around for some time. But like I said, we've sort of changed the rake of the of the back. And we've added a kind of special caning uh, that really makes the appearance of the chair a very different thing. In other pieces, there's the Gabi chair that people aren't necessarily aware of. It's less about new pieces than the entire collection has sort of received a critical review. And we've sort of said, is this still valid? Is this something that somebody wants to use? And why would they? Which which is great. You know, it's sort of like, I think there's some 48 pieces in the collection, and a few of them have been added. Like uh, the, we call it the étagère. It's a metal shelf unit, and it comes in multiple sizes. And in it by itself, it's just a fabulous object. It's about all of the things that I care about. It's about how it's put together. It's about the proportions of it. Um, if you wanted to buy it, you could say, I you know, want my books in it. But somebody else would say, I actually wanted to have all of my dishes in it or my collection of Vanini vases. And so it, the furniture always plays with the individual, the multiple layers in which you can use it. You can use things as foreground things, um, but you can also... And that's really how it came to be in the first place, is that oftentimes my clients have great collections of either very special art, but also special furniture. And so you want to juxtapose it to to downplay one and uh, complement. And as someone who's you know tried to find furniture for your your own residential projects, if you had to have a conversation with a, a a furniture designer who designs many different kinds of things for different clients, what would you want them to understand from your point of view as an architect? I think that's a really very interesting question because I've always wondered. I'm not a furniture designer per se. I go um about designing furniture with an architectural eye so i'm interested in the construction of it but at the same time i also think there is some memory that lives in one's head that inspires you to sort of think about how a piece of furniture can change a room so in some ways the furniture my thinking about furniture and related materials, meaning fabrics, uh, lighting, things like that, they're a little bit in contrast uh, to to the architecture that tends to be more austere um, and more restrained. Like I really like the notion of of craft and individuality uh, in furniture, and so it comes from a slightly different trajectory, if that makes any sense. It sort of comes from uh, almost like a collector's point of view rather yeah, than I think a, that's, an that's... industrial designer's point of view. Exactly. And, you know, I've come across people who I admire a great deal, like Jasper Morrison or Constantine Gridge. And that's what they do. They are industrial designers and they're wildly sophisticated and really interested in the process of prototyping and mass producing and 
um, it's a very different take. I like the two of them to coexist. I'm trying to remember what it was, but I just saw a piece, I think it was a chair that Jasper Morrison designed. And I just thought, my God, that's just genius. He goes about his work. I think, uh, in much the same way as I do. But furniture is his business. Whereas, in a way, at the risk of shooting myself in my own foot, it's not in the first order my business, or it's sure. not my thinking or my approach. And, you know, like a football player who, you know, takes ballet classes uh, to sort of make himself a better football player. Does you designing uh, furniture now and, and rethinking every single piece in this collection from the ground up in a way, um, does it, is it making you think about your architecture differently? Do you think that it, does it help you in your day to day to kind of change your brain in a it way? Put absolutely on a does. And uh, it's, it's really very interesting because increasingly I like the architecture to be simpler and more pure and more um, unequivocal because I can add life to it. It's not like the architecture is life, lifeless in the first place, but, but it represents a particular kind of autonomy. And so I like how scale and dimension come together in, in different ways that, that way, if that makes sense. And if there was one thing uh, before we close up, um, if there was one thing you wanted people to understand about your work um, and about Vika this fall when it makes its sort of big debut, what would you want that one thing to really be? I really think that there is a kind of universal spirit about it. All of our work is about capturing human values. And I hope that the furniture does that, despite the fact that it's not trendy, it's not pink, it's not screaming for attention. Nevertheless, I think it's profoundly inviting. And you look good in that chair. You're not just comfortable, but you look great in it. And you're going to want to use it and you're going to want to enjoy it. There is a sort of material pleasure in in that that is not frivolous, but that's it's that is real. And I hope that people get that. It's not uh, reticent. It's not it's not discipline. No, disciplinarian is the word. It's disciplined because it was designed with discipline in mind. It was like you know you think about what's what's the position for a person that to be comfortable and how does an object in space look good and how you look good in it. I kind of think that's important. I think so. I've no, that's something I've never heard uh, any furniture designer really tell me, but that's actually kind of a, a really key point. It's almost like a way a fashion designer would think about a dress, right? It's not really about the dress itself. Uh, it's about what it, the way I, a woman I, looks I like. actually think that that's true. And it's funny, there is um, a chair that my father designed. It's called the Herbert, and it's always been my favorite chair. It's very small. And people often say, it's like, come on, I'm a big person. I can't sit in that chair. And then you invite them to sit in the chair and they're like, huh, really cool. And you feel good in it. And as a result, you look good in it <laughs> and you want to use it and you want it to be yours. And, and it's that connection that you want to make with people. Not everybody's going to like your song. <laughs> 
Thank you to Annabelle and to her team for making this episode happen. For more information about Vika, visit vikadesign.com. That's V-I-C-A design.com. The editor of this episode is Stan Hall. And a special thanks to Rachel Judlow. I hope you enjoyed this first episode of season two of The Grand Tourist. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time.